And we can dismiss our nursery at this time. Absolutely. Andrea, if we hear any squealing, crying, screaming, we're just going to ignore it. So you're on your own. Close the doors, though. We don't want to hear it. (laughs) Well, we're going to continue tonight in our series in the book of 1 Samuel. And remember, I know a lot of you don't remember because you haven't been here if you're visiting. We have been studying it from a slant. And that is we have really been looking at 1 Samuel as a structure for a study in government. And we want to look at the believer's role in government uh, across the board. We have taken the time, uh, a lot of time, in, in the first two chapters to talk about the government of the home. And seeing examples of it put into practice and some examples of failure to put into practice God's design for the government within our home. And we've seen in Elkanah and Hannah and Eli and his sons and uh, in Samuel also, we've seen some great principles there. We've now moved into a time where we looked really at the government of Israel as a theocracy. What is a theocratic government where God oversees his people look like? What does it look like? How does it function? And why is it important for us to study such a government After all, we don't have any government on earth like that, do we? Well, we do. Because that is the claim to government that the church possesses, is that we are a theocratic government. That is, Jesus Christ is our head and rules over his church. That we are responsive to that leadership, and thus we describe uh, the leaders of our church as shepherds. Really, the word is under-shepherd. Shepherd boy um, is our preferred term. Uh, The more commonly used term in scripture is elder, um, but most pastors have taken pastor rather than elder or bishop um, because it portrays uh, really the humblest position, that we are under shepherds, under Christ, and he is the head. And therefore, we've been applying the principles that we have seen uh, here in 1 Samuel and other portions of scripture we brought into it and applying it to the government of the church. What should church government look like? If we are truly a theocratic entity, and that's our claim, then we should have some resemblance to how God ruled and reigned over Israel in this crucial period of time. And we don't have a lot of time here. We have the period of the judges to look at, the period of Joshua. And here in 1 Samuel, we really have just a couple of chapters before Israel's going to abandon the theocratic government. And this we need to talk about a little bit. The fact that a theocratic government is never forced upon anyone uh, throughout Scripture until we get to the Millennial Kingdom. And that's why we have Christ coming with a rod of iron to enforce a kingdom reign uh, that is not a chosen reign by the people that he is reigning over. Uh, We certainly see in that form that Israel chooses Jesus is their Messiah, but I find no evidence in Scripture that anyone else enjoys that position. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't need a rod of iron to rule over people who had received his government. So we have here an application in the church, and we've looked at how it works. That God works through individuals to lead his people, and their responsibility, as we've seen in Samuel, the prophets, the judges, Eli, and those that preceded him, Uh, as we see in Moses and in Joshua, 
uh, we found that there is this system. The government begins with God. That he declares his word to some. That that word then declared to those is give those that are received it have responsibility to then exercise that responsibility over the people of God. And that can be in the, court, in, the, in the sense of the judges, it wasn't necessarily a prophetic word, a, a teaching, a, an instruction, but a leadership to lead them against their enemies. Uh, and so Joshua falls kind of in that role. Others of the judges that come to mind, Gideon and others, they weren't there really to teach and to judge in terms of deciding cases that came to them, uh, although we saw that with Moses, certainly, and we're going to study that tonight. Uh, but we're going to find that uh, their responsibility sometime was to do what Samuel had to do. And that is, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel, the word of Samuel goes to Israel, to all the people. And this is the manner in which a theocratic government is exercised in terms of the executive side of, of it and the legislative side. It's wrapped into one. That the word of the Lord comes and it says, thus says the Lord, now this is what you, these are your laws, and this is what you should be doing implementation of law. And so that was given, that kind of authority was given to prophets, judges, uh, and priests. And we have these roles laid out for us in Scripture throughout this period of the theocratic government of Israel. Now, in that setting, we find that there is another class of rulers. So we've spent some time dealing with a pastoral role, uh, and that if he doesn't fulfill his role, that he answers not to his people, but he answers to God. And you might say, well, that gives him an awful free hand. What if we get a bad one? And we talked about that. We have studied that out, that Israel got some bad ones, didn't they? In fact, that's what was going on in 1 Samuel. Israel was confronting the fact that they had two bad ones coming down the line after Eli that had already come into their authoritative role, had already destroyed the worship in Israel, had already had that influence, and God says, I'll take care of it. Did he take care of it in a week, in a month, in a year? No, we're waiting for Samuel to grow up. In the course of that waiting, uh, Israel fails to do what they should have done, even under poor leadership, ungodly leadership, they should have sustained their service to God and waited for God to change the leadership out. If we had maintained that kind of philosophy in the government of churches, that this is God's church, and that man is his anointed one, I don't like what I see there, and I don't see any evidence that he's following after the Lord like he ought to, but he is still in that place, and so I'll honor him for the place he's in, but I'm not going to follow him into the error that he'll take us. And we'll pray, out, pray and cry out to God and ask him to intervene without the expectation that God intervenes immediately. But the expectation, like Israel should have had, is that God will raise someone up. And in fact, they knew God was raising someone up. We saw that all Israel knew that the word of the Lord had been transferred from Eli to Samuel. Even as a young person, they, all Israel recognized it. The word of the Lord is coming to Samuel. 
that little guy following Eli all over in the temple. And that should have been sufficient for them to recognize that God was handling the situation. And my contention has been that if our churches had followed that example, that expectation of what a theocratic government ought to do is wait on the Lord to deal with wrong, not, not wrongly anointed, but anointed ones that go wrong, that we would have much fewer denominationalism, no church splits, none of that. We would have none of the contentionism going on if we had taught a church government that understood how a theocracy works. That it is a matter of we're going to trust God and we're going to wait on God and not take matters into our own hands. We then saw Israel uh, at war and we saw what happens when God's people do not consult God and take matters into their own hands. What a disaster. And the same disaster happens in churches all the time in our land and around the world. Because we don't grasp what a theocratic government really means. We have poured into the government of our church our Americanism, our idea of a democratic republic. We have poured those ideas in there that aren't in Scripture and have never been affirmed or approved or taught by God. So because we are disconnected from what theocratic government really looks like, we have exercised ourselves very differently. And disaster has ensued, just as we saw in Israel, who instead of going to Samuel, all Israel knew that Samuel had the word of the Lord, instead of going to Samuel, say, why are we losing at this battle? They take matters in their own hands, says, go get Eli's sons and the ark, and bring them over here, And that'll be the magic formula to help us win this war. And of course, they fail. And by that, God uses that as the mechanism to judge Eli and his household that day. As the ark is captured, uh, sons are dead, Eli gets news of it, falls off his chair, and dies. Because God's people, instead of functioning as a theocratic system that waited on the word of the Lord and and inquired of the Lord, instead took matters in their own hands. And then last week we looked at another error in our judgment of the blessings of God. What happens when the throne of God falls in the hands of the world? Instead of being a blessing to the world, if we want to transfer blessings of the church to the world, it becomes a curse to the world. But the things that are a blessing to us are a curse to the world. You cannot transfer them to the world and expect it to bless them. Instead, you are cursing them. As the Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant into their, before their God, and Dagon ends up on his face in front of it, um, broken in pieces, we find that, and the tumors break out on them, and, and just it's just bad news. Why? Because they're not God's people. And we try to take principles of God's word, and as a church, universal, we try to enforce them on our society, and we say, listen, you're going to be really blessed if you do this, because this is God's design. 
This is what has brought God's favor. This is what God wants. And that, those are all truisms. But you cannot introduce them into the world and expect it to be a blessing there because they're not God's. Those are not God's people. And we cannot take a form of government and rip it out of the church and apply it to the world and think it's going to work. It can't work. And the form of government we're going to talk about tonight cannot and should never have been transferred to the world. It doesn't work. Because they are not led by God, and instead of being a blessing to the world, it becomes a curse. And that goes with all of our teaching. If we try to enforce morality on the world legislatively, moral majority, all that, historically, um, and I grew up sometime in my later years in Virginia, and uh, right next door to Jerry Falwell's stuff, and the moral majority was big, 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 big politics, Christian politics, and it has greatly influenced this whole generation, that we are going to implement biblical morality in our country through legislation. What horror. You are not blessing society. You are trying to make your lives comfortable by trying to bring the social norms up to Christian norms, and that doesn't bless society It curses it. The worst people to try to reach with the gospel are moral people. It's those that know they're sinners that you can reach with the gospel. But people are moral because the laws are morally based on scripture, then you have little need for the gospel. I'm a a good person. I follow the laws. The laws of the land are fair and just and good. And and after all, you agree with them. And uh, we try... To reach them with the gospel of Christ, they don't need it. They don't think they need it. And it becomes a curse to them. Because here they are thinking that because I've kept these moral groups of laws that maybe even are derived from the Bible, the Ten Commandments, um, that somehow now I am deserving of eternal life. And we have just cursed them to eternal damnation by trying to enforce something that really belongs to the church. The righteousness of the law of, of Scripture, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, is a gift to the, God's people, not to society in general. And what is a blessing to us is a curse to them. For if they try to live good Christian lives and go to church because it's the law of the land, and we're not the only ones that have done that, by the way. Um, I think that was the whole plan behind uh, money of the Reformation uh, people. Um, Calvin tried to implement it there in Geneva with a hard rod himself. Um, he pretty much thought he could bring the kingdom of God on men that way legislatively. And it was a curse. Because the blessings of God belong to the people of God. And really the reason we want to legislatively control sinners is for our own comfort. So I feel better, so that I'm safer, so that my Christian morals are protected. Um, The greatest protection for Christian morals is your blood. And the world hates you, so you know you're Christ. Didn't Jesus say that? If they hated me, they'll hate you, and if they don't hate you, something's wrong. I don't want the world to 
think I'm okay. I want the world to say, he makes me uncomfortable. I don't like him. In fact, I think we ought to burn his house down. I say, really? You know what? The gospel has always thrived in those environments. It really has. So we come to this understanding that something that was a blessing to Israel became a curse to the Philistines. And then when it comes back to Israel, it became a curse to them because they violated it. They did something even the Philistines didn't do. They looked inside. And, you know, the Philistines, their God broke apart and they had some tumors. Not very much fun. But when God's people mishandle the blessings of God, look what happened to them. 50,000 die. It seems that God's hand's a little harder against his own people than the world, doesn't it? Well, I think God said, if you are my children, I will discipline you as children. If you're not my children, I'm not going to discipline you. And this is the government within the church. That we anticipate that the world is going to sin because they're sinners. And it's foolishness to try to legislate that. Um, Yes, government is there to control sin to some degree for the benefit of all mankind, or it would be horrific to live here. But there's a difference between that and trying to transfer Christian morals in mass to the world. And so we are called to live the righteousness of Christ. And when we don't, God says there's going to be a penalty for you, Christian. You don't have a penalty in eternity, so guess where you're going to experience your penalty? Right here. And Paul tells the Corinthians, listen, uh, you've been doing some things very poorly in your church, and as a result... Some of you are, many of you are sick. Some of you are died because you have mishandled something that God give, give, has given to you as a blessing. The communion table is a great blessed thing. But when we mishandle it, it becomes something of judgment over us. And so here the Ark of the Covenant, which was a blessing to Israel, was mishandled and God judged Israel for it. And this is what a theocratic government looks like. That God becomes the, the, ex, the executor of judgment. That we are called to follow the instructions that he's given us in terms of, of, of identification, but ultimately we follow his directives. That he is the executive branch and he is the legislative branch. He decides the law. And so neither of those do we engage in as a people in a theocratic government. We do not have permission to override God's authority in those ways. And because we are on this side of the conclusion of Scripture, here's what we have. Thus says the Lord. We have his legislation. Not the law like Israel had, and we talked about grace a lot this morning, Um, But not the law like that, but a legislation to say, here's how church needs to be done. Here's how it is when God is your king. When God 
is the one that reigns over us, and that's our claim. When we call him Lord, we should expect him to reign over us. In fact, it's when we say Lord, Lord, and don't have him reigning over us that we are in jeopardy of eternal flame, the Bible says. Don't call him Lord, Lord, then do whatever you want. That doesn't work in God's economy. And so here we've seen this. Now let's press on. That's a lot of review, but I wanted to get us up to steam here because we've missed a lot of you over the last few weeks of the summer. We come, and before we get into Samuel's judging of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 7, I want to talk about what do we do uh, with the selection of leadership. Eli is dead now. Hophni and Phinehas are dead. We have a great transition of leadership to Samuel. And for most of us, when there is a need to replace leadership, what's the first thing we think of? We need to have an election, right? Because that's what we've been designed for. We need to have an election. If there's a transfer leadership, if there needs to be a change in leadership, we need to have an election. And of course, uh, here's some of the passages that people have used. If you go back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Let's see how Moses reviews this a little bit. Deuteronomy chapter 1. You'll turn there. Moses is going to review their time coming out of Egypt uh, in chapter 1. And this is a passage that's used extensively by people that want to implement this in the church. Let's pick up in verse 9. It says, And I spoke to you at that time, saying, I alone am not able to bear you. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? I feel for that guy sometimes, and I've just got a few, not dozens and dozens. Okay? Millions. So here's the statement, verse 13. Choose wise understanding and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, The thing which you have told us to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. Then I commanded, notice what he calls them, your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between brethren, and judge rightly between a man, his brother, or a stranger who is with, with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring to me, and I will hear it. And I command you at that time all the things which you should do. I commanded you. So Moses is rehearsing something what happened with his father-in-law. Father-in-law says, you're going to wear yourself out if you keep doing this. And uh, you need to get some helpers. And so Moses says, well, sounds good. He presents the idea to the people. appeals affirm it unanimously. And that's going to be really important. Uh, probably not tonight. I don't think I'll get to it. But in the weeks to come, it, they, they affirm it unanimously. They all agree. That's a great idea. So if we just entered into a democratic government, well, it might seem like it. It says, choose these men. And then we find the uh, uh, statement that uh, I'm going to take the heads that you chose and I'm going to put them in authority over you. Uh, but I want you to look very carefully at their role. Their role is not executive. It is not legislative. 
um, their role is judicial. Their role is to help Moses implement, if you will, the law in terms of judging between people. That case by case, there's going to be these judges lined up and each tribe is going to have them, and we find that there are 70 elders, and we, and we see them implemented. Um, but I also want you to recognize the time period that this was established. And a lot, in fact, I got a mailing just last week from an organization that used this passage um, to talk about how important a democracy is. Let's rehearse a little bit of history. Has this uh, given... Um, before the implementation of the priesthood. Oh, you're not sure. Let's go to Exodus. See when this was implemented. Exodus chapter 18. Now, if you're in Exodus chapter 18 and you have titles above it, you have Jethro's advice as the title above the chapter the men have added to my Bible. Uh, what happens in chapter 19? Tell me, class. Where does Israel arrive in chapter 19? Mount Sinai. And what happens in chapter 20? The law comes. Which means what happens from there forward? After the law uh, succinctly given here in the Ten Commandments, we also have then a much broader law, correct? that's going to take a few months and maybe even years to fully implement where we are going to eventually get to a tribe that is going to be set aside to be the judges. Set aside not by men's choosing, but by God's choosing based upon their participation in the uh, support of Moses when he comes back and all of Israel is... is, is uh, going after other gods and partying immorally. When Moses comes down, only one tribe takes it, and that's the tribe of Levi. And God says, they're the ones. They're going to be my judges. So this is prior to the law. Prior to the implementation of God's government, Jethro comes in and says, you know, you can't handle this on your own right now. And so here's what I want you to do. And uh, he gives them advice in, in verse 17. The thing you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it. Verse 19, listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people that you may bring the difficulties to God. So you be the intermediary between God and the people. Uh, you teach the people. Show them what they have to do. Uh, and, and you teach them. Then you select from, and it's kind of interesting, you shall select from all the people, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Sound familiar? And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. And it goes on and says this, this advice was good to Moses, and uh, it sounded good to all the people. They implement it, and now Moses has these assistants who are judging specific cases within Israel. We have a 
list of requirements, correct? That if you violate those, you are disqualified from the office. We have a overruling principle that uh, even if the people select someone, that Moses doesn't have to accept their selection because of the overruling principle, that he is over them, that he knows the law, and that he is going to implement that. We come to the New Testament, and we're going to see something very similar. Almost exactly what happens here is going to happen in the book of Acts. Let's turn there very quickly. In Acts, we have the struggle of uh, all the stuff going on with the early church. And there's uh, some problems. (laughs) Can you imagine that? The early church had problems. We often believe that they didn't, but they did. And one of the problems they had was the distribution of everyone's giving. What are we going to do with that? So chapter 6... That's where I'm at. Acts chapter 6. I'm sorry, I didn't give you a chapter earlier. Um, There are so many people. Does that sound familiar? There were just so many people. When the number of the disciples was multiplying, there rose a complaint. And it was the Hebrews versus the Greek Jews and the Hellenistic Jews um, that the Hellenistic Jews were neglecting the daily distribution. There are so many people that there's a problem. And the problem is there isn't equity out here. Just as there was a problem for in Moses' day, there's not equity. We've got to deal with something. So the 12, we got 12 apostles, not one man, but 12 apostles. They get the multitude of the disciples together. So here we have this huge gathering, probably done in, at Solomon's colonnade there in the temple area probably the only place large enough to accommodate them. And the statement, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Essentially the same thing that Jethro tells Moses. Listen, you have got a responsibility to be a mediator between the people and God. You've got to get the word of the Lord and you've got to teach it to all the people. And that's so important that it's ridiculous for you to spend hours and hours and hours every day judging every dispute among your people and sitting like that with a line going around the building multiple times and people having to wait weeks and weeks to get their matter heard because there's only one place and you're talking about a multitude. Your job is too important to be a mediator, receive the word of the Lord, teach it to the people. You've got to make a focus there. And here we find the disciples, the apostles, recognizing the same thing. It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men. Select from among you seven men. And these are not, again, an indiscriminate, whoever wants to run for the office and let's have an election. There are specific requirements. They have to be full of the Holy Spirit of wisdom, um, good reputation, it says, and then, and very importantly, we may appoint them over this business. 
So you see this process, and it's a process we don't really do in our churches, uh, but this is the process that God, if there's any kind of democratic form of selecting leadership, this is how it's been implemented. And that is we have the anointed ones, Moses, Samuel, the apostles, chosen by God, placed in that role of authority. Answerable to God, replaceable by God. Oh, I know we don't like that because what if we get stuck with a bad one and how do we find them? And I know Charity right now up in Rio Rancho is in a pastoral search and, and it's sad because we do a pastoral search uh, very differently than God would have done it. Um, it wouldn't have been by the congregation's choosing. Uh, that's, I know, heresy in our circles. But uh, it would have been by God's choosing, most often by another man of God. If you read through Acts and read through the Pauline letters, what you're going to find is a one man directing pastoral workers all over the world. Titus, you're going there, you're going to minister there for a while. Uh, Timothy, over there. And he's got guys going, Erastus, you're going that way. You know, Epaphrodite's going that way. You've got Apollos doing his thing, and he's not under Pauline authority. But, and, so, uh, and they're just engaged in this. And you might say, well, who gets to choose? Ultimately, it's God. So we have that group, this leadership group. You might say, it sounds like you're proposing two separate kinds of selection process, and I am. Because this is what God has done. He says, listen, I have selected these men. Anointed them for this position. And I'll direct them. And if they go bad, I'll deal with them. This is how God has dealt with his people as a, in a theocratic government. So, the brethren say, You seek out among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of Holy Spirit, wisdom. But notice, you don't get to install them. You, rec- you identify, you know each other, you identify seven godly men out of this huge multitude You identify seven godly men who fit this criteria. We have other lists expanding that criteria for us in Timothy, Titus, other places. Um, But you select these men, but we appoint them. Essentially, we have veto power. We are the ones going to install them um, because we have that responsibility And so we often ignore that part of it. We like the part of, brethren, you seek out among yourselves seven men. And we go, there it is, a democracy. But then we get to, we, referring to the apostles, will appoint them over this business. But we, the apostles, will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so this is the proposal. And the proposal is identical to what we found in the Old Testament. That there is an importance to one job falling upon a few shoulders, maybe only just one man's shoulders in that case. In this case, there's 12 of them, but they have a huge multiple multitude of a church. So for that case, it was Moses, and then Moses and the 70 elders. 
Um, here we have 12 apostles. And we find that their responsibility is so significant, so serious, so important, that it cannot be watered down with these other responsibilities. And we have the implementation of selecting these men who will, we will just give that over to them. That'll be their job. Well, what happens if they don't do that job very well? Well, I would contend that the appointing individual has some say in that, but ultimately we're, we're going to remove them by God's hand. That God will remove them. Whether it be through the action of the leadership of the church, and we might think that's a little unilateral for our tastes because we believe so strong in congregational government, um, but in a theocratic government, the congregation is the affirming body, not legislative, not executive, and to some degree, not fully judicial. That we assign these individuals essentially as judges to take care of these matters of a, that are of a different nature than saying, here's the word of the Lord for us today. Here's communicating God's truth to you and to be in prayer and to minister that way. But these other matters need to be handled by these men. And so we find the implementation, but we have the last step we haven't talked about yet. It says um, in verse 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. So the church identifies seven men, brings them forward, and brings them to the apostles, and the apostles laid hands on them and appointed them, anointed them, if you appointed them to that ministry. And this is what church government should look like. And it's really a reflection of what happened way back in the Old Testament. And it's layered. And we don't like the layers because we say, well, it's not fair in our idea of fairness that the pastor gets chosen this way and these other individuals get chosen that way. We have come to identify this other group as the deacons. Most of us identify this group in Acts 6 as the deacon body, uh, servants of the church. Even as those in Moses' day were there to serve with a, uh, the law, they weren't allowed to invent the law or reinterpret the law, <laughs> like our Supreme Court does all the time. Um, they weren't allowed to do any of that. And in fact, uh, they weren't allowed to s solve uh, ultimate disputes. If the judges didn't agree with it, they didn't get to decide by consensus, by the majority, did they? They didn't have that liberty. They had to take it to Moses. If there was something these guys couldn't handle, I think I know where they had to take it. There was a Jerusalem council that was convened later on of pastors. Take it to them. This has to be resolved. This is a big thing. Does the gospel go to the Gentiles or not? This isn't a, a, a simple matter for that body to take care of. This is, this is a broader thing, and it needs to be determined by a council of pastors. And so in our idea of American fairness, um, we 
really reject God's design for the church. That it is for him to call and anoint pastors and to place them and to remove them when they go bad. Even if it takes 20 years for God to do that, we wait on the Lord. And when it comes to this role, we find a very different model presented to us in Scripture, and that is that the congregation is engaged in selecting these individuals, but it still is dependent upon the, the confirmation and anointing or appointing by the pastoral group or individual. And this is the format that is followed in Moses' day that God blessed And again, we're not talking about the priestly role because that came with the law later on. And the Levites are going to fulfill that ministry fully uh, later on. But we find that here in this circumstance, God says this is how we're going to function. And interesting, later on we're going to find that Paul, as he goes through the churches, has that same terminology that he appointed elders in every church that he went to. That kind of bothers us, doesn't it? Well, no, it shouldn't, because elders are different than deacons. But there's another aspect of this I want to touch on, really, and that is the beginning part of verse 5. The saying pleased the whole multitude. And I had a conversation with Pastor Silcott this week, uh, a little bit about this, because I've been well prepared for this. This was supposed to be last week's message. Nowhere in all of my study of Scripture, anywhere do I find that the majority are right, unless they are unanimous. That's very un-American, but it is very biblical. In fact... Quite the opposite is true. It is the minority, sometimes of one, who is the voice of God. It might be one crazy guy who eats funny food and dresses weird and lives out in the desert. But he's the voice of the Lord. And everyone else is wrong. And when it comes down to a vote between Ezekiel and everyone, Ezekiel is right. When it comes down to Moses versus everyone, Moses is right. When it comes down to this individual who is a servant of God, Isaiah, and everyone else, Isaiah is right. Jeremiah, I mean, he was delivered once by the princes of of Israel who came down and convinced the crowd not to kill him. But there's no election here. There is no, um, well, if the majority believe this way, then I guess we'll do it. Here, as in the Old Testament, the only time the majority are correct, are right, are God-directed, is when they are uniform, when they are unanimous. Then that represents God's desires for them. They are heading in the right direction. And so we're going to find that played out here that the whole multitude says, that's a great idea. Of course it is, because it already worked once. 
the Old Testament, disciples didn't, just, the apostles didn't, you know, recreate the wheel here. They go, oh, it worked for Moses, let's try that. Good plan. This is the, what a theocratic government looks like. And you and I are disconnected from it because we haven't been trained in it. Me too. I'm not sure fully how to constitute a church like this. It wasn't in my seminary training or Bible college. It wasn't there. But this is the pattern God's given us of what government in the church should look like. When you're with God's people, we wait upon God to raise up that pastor, prophet, uh, judge, that one, or that body, and select them and place them. And they are accountable to God. And when they fail God, God removes them. In his time, his way. Then we have another body of leadership that is servant of things that this people over here might call mundane, but they're crucial. I mean, these are things that we live with every day that we have to, I got, you know, we, we all have to deal with things every day. You have to deal with each other. You have to deal with paying your bills. You've got to deal with life. And this body is there. And they can't make up any rules. They can't say, thus says the Lord. Their whole job is to simply do the law. Do the rules. Follow them and implement them and apply them. And if it gets over their head, they don't get to make up new rules. They need to acquiesce to this other authority who is acquiescing to the ultimate authority, which is the king who we claim to be Jesus Christ in the church. What I fear congregational government has become is congregational rule where we supplant God. And we are not really functioning as a theocratic government. We make claim to it but I don't really see it at work. Rather, I see us functioning more like a democracy and calling it congregational government. And again, this kind of selection process only works when you have individuals who are led by the Spirit of God and under His control. Is this disturbing and shattering? Sure it is. Is it unsettling? Well, it is to me. I'm a good GRBC guy. (laughs) Congregational government. We've been pounding it. Well, congregational government cannot be granted such authority that we stop being a theocratic church. Either God is king or we are. And we're going to investigate this a lot more later on in Samuel when all Israel says, we want what we want, we choose, we want this, and the horrible things that happen that way. But when I go through God's word, the greatest sin committed by God's people is we are going to decide. 
we are going to decide. And when we point our finger to God and says, well, we've just chosen this, brace yourself because God's blessing will not be there. Cannot be there. We're going to explore this a little bit more later on. Um, we're not going to have any sweeping constitutional changes next week. We're going to take our time and investigate and study. Um, but you can anticipate that something needs to give. Either we have to say God's word doesn't say what it says, or we have to change and conform ourselves to God's word. We've been confronting that in First and Second Corinthians a lot. And now... We're confronting it here in Joshua also. We haven't gotten the government of the nations. We've got probably three more weeks of government in the church. And then we're going to let Pastor Silcott take over for a little while while I get the government of the nations out of First Samuel prepared better. But uh, struggle. It's okay to wrestle with it. As long as we're willing to surrender once we determine, well, that's God's design and it might be different than our design and if that's the case which one do you want let's pray lord god we do thank you for your word and lord we um thank you for the principles that we see at work in it and lord we call you lord help us as a church to mean it by letting your standards be our standards your government the one that you've chosen to be our government lord that you might give us wisdom and insight in the implementation of this kind of truth to unlearn a system that we have been so committed to to consider that which you have taught in your word lord we do pray for the leadership of our church for pastors, for deacons. Lord, we pray you might work in their lives. Give them wisdom. Fill them with your faith, your spirit, for that ministry. And Lord, we uh, commit them to you and thank you for them. And pray that we might uh, be found at your coming, living individually, but also as a church functioning as you would have us function. That the transition to your kingdom will be a small one because we have already transitioned to making you king here on earth. We praise his in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.